0: it is more beneficial for teachers and adults to talk about everybody is different. Every single person in this group has a different way of saying something, of learning something. There might be a few that have the same way, but that's the piece that we need to unlock in our kids so they don't feel stigmatized.
1: Welcome to the Beautifully Complex Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. Today I have with me occupational therapist, Laura Peddix, also known as the OT butterfly. And we're going to talk about how sensory impacts learning and behavior such an important topic because we know that sensory really fuels a lot of reactions and behaviors from our kids. So I'm really excited to share Laura's insights and expertise with you. Thanks for being here, Laura. Will you start by introducing yourself? Just let everyone listening know who you are and what you do.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Penny. Thank you, everybody, for listening. As she mentioned, I am a pediatric occupational therapist. I work in a private clinic, one-on-one with children who have a variety of needs and supports that I help them with. I specifically work with children who have sensory processing challenges and that can impact their behavior and learning at school. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I also spend some time coaching parents on how sensory impacts learning and behavior so that they can support their neurodivergent kids at home as effectively as possible. Lately, I've been really perfecting my conscious parenting, gentle parenting. There's so many different words for Mm -hmm. it, but I've been perfecting that part of my parenting skill with a neurodivergent twist. So I like to call it gentle parenting with a neurodivergent twist because I really, really believe in the approaches that those methods offer and how we see the child differently. However, I do believe that parents of neurodivergent kids need a little bit more explicit examples of how you can apply those approaches to our own kids. And I have a neurodivergent child myself. She is almost five. She has anxiety and sensory processing disorder, and I have anxiety myself. So we have a lot of practice in understanding how different brains work, and I like to take that approach that I use with myself and help other parents find their perfect approach with their child, with their specific needs.
1: I love it. One of the biggest ahas for me was when my son started occupational therapy, I started learning about like how his brain works and how sensory plays into the behaviors that we were seeing. And it was so monumentally helpful to just understand him better and what he was doing and why he was doing it was really, really helpful for us. I want to start by asking you, is it sensory or is it behavior? Because I'm sure you get that question a lot. And I know it's a very important sort of lens for us to use for this entire conversation?
0: Yes, this is the question of the year of the century for every parent who has a (laughs) child with any sort of behavior. And then when you learn what sensory is, it's very easy for you to see how they are linked. And then I find that when parents learn about sensory processing, like you said, it's this aha moment, it's a light bulb, but almost to the point where like, Then you're like, is everything my child doing sensory? Mm. Then the next question is, well, he does hit his sibling a lot, and I thought he was being a bad kid, so is that a sensory thing, or is it a behavior? So I always get some translated form of, is it sensory, or is it behavior? And I spend a lot of my time trying to debunk or reframe this debate, which – Really, when I think about it, when I hear parents say, like, I like to take a very specific example. So let's say the example is hitting, like always hitting their sibling. That's such a common one, Mm -hmm. a a sibling or a friend. Is it sensory or is it behavior? And so when a parent is asking that, what you're really asking as a parent, what you're trying to really understand from that question is, is my child hitting on purpose to be bad, to get a reaction, or is it something they quote, can't help with a sensory need? And that's what you're trying to divide in your head. And so I I understand where you're coming from, but why we should look at it differently is, first of all, the behavior is hitting. A behavior is anything that is observable, something that you do in reaction to some sort of stimulus in the environment. It doesn't even have to be another person. If it's really hot and I'm sleeping at night, it's really hot, I'm gonna like pull off my blanket and maybe even like fan my sweat off a little bit. That's a behavior. I'm responding to a stimulus in the environment. If someone takes something from me, Or if someone is really close to my body and I hit them, the hitting is the behavior, no matter what, whether it is sensory driven or it's not sensory driven. And that's what I spend my time doing. Instead of saying, is it sensory or behavior? I like parents to understand sensory is behavior, sensory responses is a behavior, Mm -hmm. hitting is a behavior, period. Now, what we want to do is decide, is it sensory driven? Is the hitting being driven by a sensory component or a sensory need, or is it being driven by something else? And this list of other or something else can be anything from social, emotional, cognitive challenges, communication challenges, emotional needs, connecting with a peer, connecting with an adult, so many other things in that category that's not sensory driven, but Even if the hitting is sensory driven, it's still a behavior. And I would argue that both of those things, whether it is a sensory need or some other need, whether it's building a skill or a need for a connection, both of those are needs and are, quote, are more or less out of our child's control in the sense that they're not doing it to be a bad kid. It's that there is something that they are missing and that they need help getting.
1: Yeah, because so often it is not intentional. You know, it feels very intentional to us as parents, right? Or as anyone around that child. Say, if if the child is hitting me, that feels pretty personal, doesn't it? Absolutely, especially when they're older. Yeah, but if we just take the time to ask what's behind it, why is it happening? What is triggering it? What is it driven by, as you're saying? Then we can really be helpful. Plus, I think, you know, we give our kids the benefit of the doubt that way. And it's a much more compassionate way to parent.
0: Exactly. Different parenting approaches and different ways of disciplining your child's behavior, right? Discipline is just teaching them something, right? It doesn't always mean punishment. Mm -hmm. Discipline does not equal punishment. But there are different parenting styles where you are separating the child's behavior from the child themselves and all of the feelings and sensory needs and skills that they have and don't have. You're separating the behavior from the child. But different parenting strategies... Some might focus only on the behavior and trying to change the behavior and stop the behavior and do all of the things with the behavior. And then there are other parenting approaches where you focus more on the child and supporting them first and the skills that they need to build. Mm -hmm. And then there are other parenting approaches where they don't separate the behavior from the child and they think that the behavior defines the child. So there are so many different ways, but... In general, I like to separate the child from the behavior. The behaviors do not become the child. The child does not become the behavior. But our first plan of action is to find out why, because that's what's going to allow us to effectively help. So whenever I get a question, my child is hitting, my child is biting, my child keeps running away, how can I help? And I always say, well, before we get to the how, we need to understand the why because our approach mm-hmm. to the how looks so different depending on what the why is.
1: Yeah, and what we're really talking about is the fact that behavior is communication. Exactly. What is the behavior trying to tell us? Exactly. And so let's talk a little bit about that process as far as sensory-driven behaviors, How do we figure that out? We see this behavior on the surface. Our child is hitting another child. We don't think it's intentional. How do we then figure out what is really driving that behavior?
0: Yes. So this question relies a lot on a lot of data points, so to speak, as parents. Mm -hmm. So you really do need to spend a lot of time observing. You might even get a pen and paper out and write down patterns of things and when you notice them around certain environments, context, times of days, days of the week, all of those things to see if there's a certain pattern. And that's always going to be your first step. But I'm going to give a very specific example of a behavior and show you just how many different ways it can be related to sensory and how you truly need to understand your child's sensory patterns or needs a little bit to be able to get you closer to the answer. But at the end of it, it can be very complex, and this is sometimes when you do need to seek an evaluation or an assessment to truly see your child's sensory profile. But here's an example. Like I said, hitting is always like a really great one with a lot of complex layers, and this is a very realistic example. Like A child is sitting in a group of, whether it's his siblings or cousins, or if we want to imagine, we're at school, and they're sitting in a circle playing with Hot Wheels cars. Rolling and playing, and maybe using those ramps and all of that. And your child is hitting another child or anybody that tries to grab the cars out of his hand, right? Right. If we don't zoom out, if we are just so zoomed in on that one microsecond of him hitting the kid who grabbed his car, our first thought might be, Oh, he doesn't like to share. He needs to learn how to share his cars. That's what it is. So Johnny, go share with your cousin, give it, and you take it out and you give it to his car. And and he's still hitting the next time it happens. The next time it happens, well, he knows Mm -hmm. how to share. What is it? So you're too zoomed in on the hitting. So let's zoom out a bit. And when I say zoom out, it's either like a, like I imagine a camera panning out to like Mm -hmm. visually see bigger parts of the environment. Or I also like to think of it as like rewinding the tape, So if you saw this little like screenshot, snapshot of like him hitting a kid, that's one little microsecond of that interaction. So I like to almost like rewind and zoom out to see what happened before in the context potentially. So in that context, when you're either in a classroom or like you're at, you know, in the living room or something, and there's other kids there there's extra auditory input. There's extra sounds coming Mm -hmm. around. Maybe everyone's making a really loud monster truck sound, like all of those really big sounds. Maybe the TV's on, or if you're in a classroom, there's other kids playing in different areas of the room and sounds are bouncing off. So if you have a child who's sensitive to sound, and it doesn't always have to be loud sounds, doesn't have to be just afraid of the toilet or the blender or the vacuum. They might be very sensitive to just competing sounds, which I am a person like that. When there's talking, beeping, electronics, the hum of the air conditioner, all of that mixed together can be hard for a child who is sensitive to auditory input. So let's take the sound. Maybe all of those sounds at once Is making your child with sensory challenges feel more dysregulated than another child who does not have sensory differences. And what the brain does is when it's feeling dysregulated, especially from a sensitivity perspective, it can trigger the fight or flight mode in the brain, which is really a survival protective mode. Mm -hmm. That part of the brain in your child is signaling to them that they are in a moment of danger. Even if it's not dangerous to your eye, their brain might be perceiving it just as if you had heard a bear roaring or a lion roaring right behind you and you just instantly have to run because you think you're in danger. That can be the same amount of danger a child with sensory processing experiences in their brain. And so his form of protecting is hitting. And so maybe he hit because his brain is dysregulated from all of the auditory input. That's one example. Another example might be, right, when a child grabs something out of your hand There's an imposed touch aspect, meaning someone else's hand and skin made contact with your skin. And if you're a child who is maybe sensitive to touch, other signs of sensitive to touch would be like disliking a lot of grooming activities, brushing your hair, brushing your teeth, taking a bath, getting dressed, all of those things where other people are putting things on you or touching your skin might give you a reaction. So when the other person maybe meant to gently grab the car out of his hand, grazed his hand too much on his arm or something might've set him off into that same fight or flight mode that another child with auditory sensitivities might have. Right. So those are just like two very quick examples that have nothing to do with the inability of sharing or the social emotional aspect that could be related to sensory. Now, even in a more zoomed out picture, maybe it's not within that moment that that sensory trigger happened, but that child is just dysregulated in general from a morning of busyness in the school. Maybe their routine got thrown off because it's a half day at school. Maybe they're wearing a new pair of pants that they're sensitive to the seams of it. Maybe that morning they had a non-preferred food on their plate and they are dysregulated from having that experience and it can carry over throughout the day. What we know with our kids with sensory challenges, even if they're removed from the quote trigger, their system might have a hard time coming back to baseline or that regulated state. And so you might see behaviors that feel, quote, out of the blue, Mm -hmm. but they're still kind of linked and resonating and lingering from an earlier event or something that happened. And again, just one last thing is those are just examples of sensitivities. There are kids who have a bigger threshold and are able to tolerate a lot more touch and sound to the point where they are unaware of their force. And maybe they meant to just grab the car back, but instead they accidentally pushed or pulled so hard that it dropped the other kid back. And that's more of their low awareness of their body and their force that they're using. And that's a whole different sensory perspective as well. And that's just the sensory piece, right? There could be language components to it. There can be a peer connection component. There can be a rigidity or flexibility challenge but there's so many different layers, and that's just one way of peeling it back in one way.
1: Yeah, and I love that you use the word layers because, yes, it could be a sensory trigger, but maybe it's more triggering because there's other components layered on that. Maybe they're also having a tough time with frustration tolerance or, you know, feeling like they don't fit in the group, that they don't have friends. So many things can be playing in there, but I love the idea that there's multiple layers to that too, and we have to be sort of detectives to figure out that it may just be one thing or it may be multiple things and keeping our minds open to that. And you give the best examples. (laughs) I love your examples because as a parent, it's so much easier for us to kind of have those big ah ahas when we get those examples and we can say, oh, my kid does that. My kid is hitting other kids at school. I'm constantly getting called at home and I had no idea what might be causing that. Now I know what to look at, right? Yes. And it's so very helpful in that aspect. I would love to talk a little bit more about the sensory role with learning and in the school environment, because I think so many kids struggle with that. The classrooms often are not sensory friendly. Mm -hmm. I know my own son had so many sensory challenges. He was both sensitive and a sensory seeker in different ways. And so it was really tough with the overwhelm, the competing sounds, right? Other Mm -hmm. people having conversations over top of maybe the teacher was a big aggravation for him. And it was driven by sensory. And so many parents really question, how do I help my kid? In the school environment, what do I ask for? What do I ask the teachers to do to help in these ways?
0: Yeah. So, my dream is for one day for not only for classrooms to be more conducive to sensory learners or everybody's learning style, right? The first thing to know is everybody has sensory quirks, everyone has different learning styles. Yes. But my dream is more also to the fact that schools classrooms, maybe OTs would go in the classrooms, that there is just more general education to the wider public of especially neurotypical children to learn that there are multiple ways of learning to read a book or to write a letter or to do all of the different things. We spend so much time as parents of neurodivergent kids spending so much time advocating and making our kids feel accepted, but there's not enough work on the other people who need to just become more accepting and aware that there are Mm -hmm. different ways to learn, to communicate, to process, right? So that's like, just like a bigger picture system-wide thing I hope one day would change. But in the classroom, just one little bit about why that happens, just so parents can understand. When your child is either like seeking out movement, right? Like you, you mentioned your child does, or has a hard time filtering out extra sounds Or has a hard time filtering out touch from the seams of their socks. Anything sensory related that we know that their brain works harder to do from a sensory processing perspective. All of those things that I mentioned, neurotypical people's brains do automatically without any extra effort. It's just kind of like running Mm -hmm. in the background, right? Kids with sensory processing challenges, their brains are more like inefficient, so to speak. It spends way more energy doing something that should be very automatic. So that naturally means that you have less brain space for executive functioning skills, for social emotional learning, for all of the things that they are expected to do in the classroom. So what you're going to see is if you don't meet those needs for them by accommodating the environment, by changing up their seating, their brain is going to spend so much time meeting those needs first because their body is not regulated. Mm -hmm. And so if they're spending all of that energy on that first, they're going to have less for remembering to raise their hand, for remembering to put the marker cap back on, for remembering to turn in his his sheet of paper after he writes his name on it, because there's too many steps to that. But my brain was focusing on first filtering out that screech of the chair that someone just tucked in, and I had to look and see what it was. All of these tiny, tiny things, right? And so if teachers, parents, OTs, classroom aids, if if we can take that load off of our kids by creating an environment that's more accommodating, and it's going to look different for every kid, but if we can do that and spend more time acknowledging that, then we are going to do everybody in the classroom a better service because everyone's going to be able to access the academic skills a little bit better. So some common sensory strategies in the classroom. Again, it's going to depend on each kid, every learning profile, but the number one thing that like we always look about first is like seating arrangements, right? Whether you're a sensitive kid to sound or you need movement. So having a lot of options for where they can sit in the classroom and how they can do work. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, you want them all to be reading, but do they have to be reading at their desk? Can he read on his tummy in the beanbag? Or, you know, yes, you want them to be working on this math worksheet, but My child has a really hard time remembering how to hold the pencil and still writing the numbers. So he's going to get all of it wrong, even though he knows the math. So can he use stamps of numbers instead and stamp the answer instead of writing it with a pencil?
1: I love that idea.
0: Can he do his work standing, standing at a table, maybe instead of sitting down? Can he do it on a clipboard while sitting on a beanbag? Like just finding ways where if you as the teacher are thinking of what is my goal out of this assignment, this activity, is the writing of the numbers or spelling the words really important or can I have him like audibly spell it to me so I know he understands yeah. the information. So it's it's accommodating your demands on the academic piece, but also accommodating the way that kids learn by allowing them to use noise reducing headphones, by allowing them to sit somewhere outside of the circle time, maybe behind the kids if they need to stand up and move and rock, but can still listen to the story or the lesson. So just being more flexible in the way that your classroom looks. And then the one step further, like I said, that we always miss is, okay, once you get your teachers to accommodate that, can you go a step further and educate the entire classroom of these tools are here for everybody to learn? best, right? So this rocking chair seems to work for this child, and you might see him using it. That's how his brain learns best. You are free to choose that. If it works, sensory tools are not toys. They are meant to help you learn. If it doesn't help you learn, then that tool is not for you. But we want to get away from like, only Johnny is sitting in that corner because he needs quiet. Yeah, yeah. We do want your child to access the sensory tools, and we don't want every kid to be using a a wobble stool because it's fun. We don't want and then then your child who really needs it can't access it. That becomes a problem too. But it's just a general education that like everybody's brain learns differently and some kids learn better standing up, some kids learn better with headphones and that's just a matter of fact, nothing wrong, nothing worse or better, it's just a different way.
1: Just the way it is. Yeah. And that really breeds A culture where kids don't feel so different. Like my son, when he was young, he would not use the special paper because he needed the help with his handwriting. He would not, you know, have the fidgets on his desk because everybody wanted to know what he had. Yeah. And they weren't supposed to have it. Right. And then he felt bad about having things that other kids couldn't have. And, you know, it was a whole. A whole journey, but yeah, he felt so different. And if they just would have talked more about how everybody's different and how yeah, some kids need a wiggle seat and some kids need, you know, to be in the back of the classroom and be able to walk while they're learning their spelling, then they wouldn't feel so singled out. They wouldn't feel so bad about it.
0: Exactly. I almost always recommend whether the school is providing a support, like a sensory tool, a fidget, a a cushion seat, or if it's the parents, which parents buy them all the time Mm -hmm. and send them to school. I usually encourage parents to buy like a couple extra just to have in the classrooms. That's like, anybody can use these. And then the parents take it with them like to the next classroom, like second grade, third grade, fourth grade. But just so that your child's used to seeing like, like, if anyone else needs a fidget, it's up here. But then making sure your child has theirs on the desk, but knowing that, like, oh, anyone can use one too if they need it. And taking that stigma, special treatment away from your child and just more of like, this is what this person needs to learn with. And that different sometimes to kids still feels bad. Mm-hmm. Even as adults, there's nothing wrong with being different. But to kids, they always just want to fit in and look the same. So I think it is more beneficial for teachers and adults to talk about that everybody is different. Not just this one person is different from the group, but every single person in this group has a different way of saying something, of learning something. There might be a few that have the same way, but there's, I promise you, like he is not the only person that... Learns a different way. It's just everybody has different things about them. I think that's the piece that we need to unlock in our kids so they don't feel like othered or like stigmatized.
1: It's so needed because my son went through his entire schooling feeling like there weren't any other kids like him. I mean, in ninth grade, he said that to his special education teacher there's nobody in this entire building that's like me. And there were like 2,500 kids in that building, right? Yeah. And so those conversations are so, so valuable and i think we can help to support them as parents in the classroom you know as you were saying if we send three wiggle seats and in instead of just one and we talk to the teacher about how we want to make sure that our child doesn't feel singled out and that you know they could have a conversation about how everybody learns differently you know my son in first grade he had the most wonderful teacher who did differentiated instruction And she was just amazing. She always put movement in and tactile and just all these things to make sure she was giving every learner an opportunity. And she actually taped a big rectangle under Luke's desk. And as long as he was in that rectangle and his stuff was, he was considered on task. So very often he would be on his belly under the desk doing his worksheet, right? And that's amazing. That's totally fine because he was learning and he was doing what he needed to do. And that's really. As you were saying, we have to figure out what is the ultimate goal and how can we be creative for our kids so they can get there.
0: Exactly. And then the last thing I usually remind parents is they're like, "Well, he's going to have to learn how to sit at a desk someday or mm. to do things he's told." And I'm like, "Well, is he like or like, you know, when you're an adult, you typically find a lifestyle that works mm-hmm. for you. When you go to college, if you know you're not a morning person, you don't sign up for that 8 a.m. class. You right. fill your cl- your days at the later end. If you know you're an active person, you become a gym person that goes to the gym at 5 a.m. before you go to work. If you need a lot of movement, if you don't like a lot of people, you will find a job where you can work from home, create your own business, and never have to talk to another person other than people. You want to engage with maybe on video games or like your neighbor or like you can tailor your lifestyle to what works best when you're adult. So you don't have to conform to the neurotypicality, like the world that is created by neurotypical people for neurotypical people. You don't have to fit into that. You do want to be able to do your daily tasks. And a lot of that does require that you access certain skills that feel more, quote, like neurotypical, but we shouldn't have to shy away from or worry about like having too many accommodations for our kids, especially in school.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because we hear that argument so often as parents That, you know, they have to learn to do this eventually or or we even feel that way as parents because we worry about their future. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm really worried about my kid being able to hold down a job and be successful. I'm going to worry about every skill that I think he might need in the future. Yeah. And instead, we really need to be letting them guide us. The kids need to guide us on what works for them. Yeah. What sort of support do they need? what sort of jobs might they like to have? You know, if if they couldn't imagine sitting at a desk all day, every day, yep. then maybe they need to be thinking about being an occupational therapist for one thing, or yeah. a gym teacher, <laughs> or, you know, something that keeps them moving throughout the day. And that's part of our job as parents, really, is to help support that journey of figuring that out, exploring those options. But we can't get tripped up today about what our kids may or may not be able to do or fit 10, 15, 20 years down the line, right?
0: Exactly. And I think that the number one skill you can teach your neurodivergent child even more than any executive functioning, communication, sensory skill, fine motor skill, daily task, before any of that, the best skill you can teach your child is self-advocacy. And Mm -hmm. for that, they need to be very aware of their strengths as well as their limitations. And there's nothing wrong with with having limitations or things that you know that are going to be harder for you. Mm -hmm. That is something that you need to understand and how to leverage your strengths and how to feel comfortable advocating for the extra accommodations you might need in your workplace or when you are hiring and they say, do you have any questions for us? Don't be shy to ask, what is your policy on taking 20 minute breaks instead of a 15 minute break in the middle Mm -hmm. of the day, like all of the things you need to ask and know what makes you the best version of you and what you need for that. Don't be shy to ask for it and to be able to explain and be aware of your strengths as well.
1: Yeah, that's so important. And I feel like, you know, again, it's such a journey and we get so wrapped up in where we think we need to go. And we really need to be open and creative for our kids. That's what they need from us. Their sensory needs demand that. Their social emotional needs, all of these other needs that can feed into behavior, as we talked about in the beginning, they all need to sort of be guided by our kids and not in such an overt, direct way, but just, you know, let them show you what they need or be really aware to what's going on so that you can see what they need. You know, if every time your child is trying to do math homework, they get up and they start walking in circles around the table, what kind of signal is that, right? What are they telling us? How are they trying to guide us to what they need? It's super, super important, Mm -hmm. um, especially when they're not aware enough to advocate. So they, they know they need something different, but they don't know what yet. You know, we can look for those clues. That's right.
0: Yep. That's right. Their body is telling you exactly what they need, but they might not have made that connection yet to Mm -hmm. a, like a higher awareness of like, oh, I need movement. They might not be able to say that there might just be like, I don't know. I just have this urge to get up and pace and move. It does take teamwork to put those pieces together. And that's when sometimes when you're, it's still not making sense to you as a parent, you have all of these patterns and like you can talk about them very clearly, like, oh, I know specifically at this time every day he has to do this, I can't figure out why. That's when you definitely can benefit from seeking support from an occupational Mm -hmm. therapist. And they can help put those clues together. So you're kind of gathering all the clues. The OT might ask you questions to get some more clues and then the OT will put it all together in this sort of way of like seeing your child in a different lens yeah. that will make it all make sense and hopefully give you that like light bulb moment. And then from there, you guys can come up with the best approach on not only helping your child build those skills, but also how can you accommodate your home environment, and your school environment to help your child succeed best.
1: Yeah, and very individualized by working with an OT, Mm -hmm. you get exactly what that child needs. Exactly. Um, A very clear picture of where they are and what their needs are. Yeah. So as we wrap up, I would love if you would share with the parents listening or teachers and educators, what one action item can they take right now to help their kids or affect some change in the world of sensory?
0: Oh, that's such a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is kind of what I mentioned earlier, where let's spend a lot of time just spreading awareness about the idea of neurodiversity, period, Mm -hmm. which if anyone listening to this, neurodiversity applies to everybody. Everybody's brain is different. Our kids with specific needs, like sensory needs, maybe ADHD, autism, They are considered neurodivergent, but as a whole, as a human species, we are neurodiverse. So let's spread awareness of that brains work differently. And the first thing I would say for you as an adult listening is to list down sensory things, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, movements that you really, really love more than a typical person (laughs) does or that you hate more than a typical person does. Like for me, it's like mushrooms and like movement stuff. (laughs) I like get dizzy easily. Mm -hmm. And then also things that you do to regulate your body when when you're sitting and listening to a very long talk. Are you a pen clicker? Are you a foot tapper? Are you a hair twirler? All of those things. And then when you have that listed, share that with your child, with your students and start that conversation. This is what I need to regulate. I need quiet. I need dim lights. And I need like something to click. That's how I learn best or to get really focused. What do you need? I noticed you really like to lay on the floor to do coloring. Does that make your body feel calm? So just starting those conversations, but not just with your neurodivergent kid. Yes. With everybody mm-hmm. and just bringing awareness like, oh, that's really cool. Your brain focuses best with music. Like this is a big thing at home, working from home. Me and my husband have very different work from home styles. Yeah. He loves listening to music and having background sounds like he can't work if it's too quiet. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite opposite. I need silence. And that is very different. Yeah. And just that fact of realizing that can go a long way. So I would recommend anybody listening to take note of how you learn and regulate best and share that with a child that you're working with.
1: Yeah, such a fantastic idea. I love that action that people can take right now. And using ourselves as an example, it humanizes us and it lets our kids know that everybody truly does have differences, every single one of us. Yep. It's really reinforcing that message and I love it. Yeah. For everyone listening, I want to make sure that you know how to learn more from Laura and connect with Laura through her website and social media. All of those details and links are available in the show notes at parentingadhdandautism.com. 179 for episode 179. And Laura, again, I thank you so much. Your examples and the simple way that you are letting parents know what to look for and how to help their kids is so important. And we surely appreciate you sharing some of it with us today.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. So thank you for having me and everyone. Thank you for listening.
1: With that, I will see everyone on the next episode. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at parentingadhdandautism.com and and at thebehaviorrevolution.com.